This is Strange Assembly, episode 129, Farming. Hey, this is Chris just popping in for a second here to give you a heads up. As you probably know, we are all at remote locations when we do the recording. In this instance, we were having a bit of a problem with Mike's internet connection, and so the recording directly off of Skype is not exactly the quality we would like to be. Normally, that wouldn't have been a problem because we would just use the audio that Mike directly recorded off of his own line, except that Mike had a bit of a problem with his audacity, leaving us with only the subpar quality direct off of my Skype recording for him. So just be forewarned, some of Mike's dialogue here is is not exactly the standard we would like it to be, uh, and we're sorry about that. Now, on with the show. Well, Mike, I'd like to ask you, what is your favorite strategy for for farming with your, your WoW account? How do you like to approach that? By not having played on it in six months. <laughs> uh, I've got you beat. I am the only person left on the planet who has never played WoW, but actually... You, you are not the only person. I sometimes as, feel like it. As many people uh, as have played, yeah, no, I, I know a number of people who have not have never played. Yes. That's okay. They uh, have drinks for that now. <laughs> but what uh, I have played recently is a variety of new board games because we are not going to talk about WoW. We are Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. I am Chris Stevenson, and here with me today are Mike Cook. Yep. And Jay Earl. Hey. And what we're going to lead off with today is... Very much, I think, the big hot thing right now, which is Caverna, the cave farmers. I just now have this fun mental image of people farming caves. You don't do farming usually in the cave, but you have you have a cave and you are a farmer. No, no, what they're what they're farming what they're farming is caves. They plant little caves and they grow into much bigger caves and they harvest the cave. Look, loot they have exceptionally good gold drops. <laughs> so, you know, the, the easiest way to approach Caverna is that, hey, it's Agricola 2.0. If you haven't played Agricola and you have any interest in Bureau games, you should probably go play Agricola. It's not in my personal top 10, but there's a reason why it's on the, the Board Game Geek top 10. And Caverna is, is also by Uwe Rosenberg. It has a lot of the same mechanics as Agricola, and I think for dis- purposes of discussing it, I'm just going to assume that you've played Agricola so that uh, comparisons can be made. In Caverna, like in Agricola, you start with a little family, you have a little board, and on one half of the board is fields, and one half of the board is your cave, which starts out almost entirely just solid rock, and you have to dig the cave out as the the game goes on it's a worker placement game you can expand your family as the game goes on and like most worker placement games you have spots in the middle there's a lot of variety in how the spots work 
depending on, on the different number of players. And by the time you get to the end of the game, you want to have a player board that is full of stuff. On the farm side, you plant fields and then you put vegetables and such in the fields and you harvest more of it. You can also have pastures where you put different kinds of animals. On the cave side, you again want to have dug out into the cave sides. You can put in, put in different kinds of mines and you can put other structures in the caves, including dwellings, which are the caverna equivalent of rooms. Now, the ways that I, I think, at least, the most prominent ways that Caverna is different from Agricola is that, first, the food is not as brutal. You still have to feed your family every couple of turns or every turn. It's a little bit more variable in Caverna how it... But it's not like a million points lost if you fail? Well, the, the big difference is not that you don't lose a million points, it's that you no longer, everything can be converted to food. If you Mm -hmm. have anything, you can just convert it into food, right? In Agricola, you have to have an oven to be able to bake bread, and then you have to have something else to let you convert this kind. And if you, if you don't have converting improvements, like you just actually have to have food. Whereas in this, just everything that you have laying around, you can eat or, you know, converts to food. I've got a question, if you don't mind. Shoot. So one of the things that kind of annoys me about about the original is that it penalizes you for not going in certain options. Like, you, you really... It's not so much you want to diversify, is that you have to diversify. Because frequently, the bonuses of getting multiple of something is not worth the penalty of not having something else. Even if it's just one. Is that something that's still true in Caverna, or is that more... Is that different now? It is mostly still true. In Agricola, you've got the you've got the different kinds of animals, and then you've got fields, and you've got the different you know vegetables and wheat, and I think you take a minus two point penalty or something like that if you have nothing. And so the biggest jump is going from nothing of a particular category to something. In Caverna, you do still have a penalty. I think it's one if you have nothing of a particular kind of animal. Uh, but there aren't as many categories that you have to hit. You do still get penalized for not having filled up your your board, but there's no longer caps on how much you can get of something, right? So in Agricola, I think you can't get more than four points from anything. You know, like you yeah. you can have right. eight sheep, and if you have eight thousand sheep, it's worth exactly as much as eight sheep. In Caverna, there's no cap. So yes, it does behoove you to have at least one of everything, but you can also just go whole hog into one particular thing and and really jack up your points in that. So it does give you more flexibility in your strategies. Another thing that gives more flexibility is that Agricola, right, you have start with seven occupations and seven minor improvements randomly in your hand, and those are what you have access to for that game, and it's different every game, and they're usually I mean, they can be a big deal, but they might not be, and it it varies a little bit. In Caverna, there are something like 50 different structures, including the dwellings, and they're all available for everyone to buy, 
at the start of the game, kind of like the major improvements are, except they're not as hard to get. And so you can do a lot of different strategies with those because some of them are things like giving you victory points for having a lot of a resource around that's not usually worth victory points at the end of the game. So I think this is one place I'll just mention now, I'll try to cover it later, just so I don't forget. A lot of people, I think, think that Caverna is just better than Agricola, and it has it has really shot up the ranks on board game. game. I kind of think that it's mostly different from Agricola rather than necessarily better. Now that's not a condemnation because I think Agricola is really good and Caverna is really good. I don't think that it's automatically just better. And I think this is one of those places to me where the game is different but not necessarily better. Not worse, but not necessarily better. And that's because there there's an upside to having all of these options available. You can develop different strategies and deliberately try different strategies in different games and see what works. But you also have to just kind of sit there and know what all 50 of these are, or at least have some idea of which ones you want to try to go through, go for, for your preferred strategy and then how you're going to jump off of that if you don't know that strategy. So it's, it's an awful lot of information to absorb when you sit down and play it, if you aren't being really serious about it. And I think a lot of the people who like Caverna better like that better. But I think one of the the reasons, I, again, I say different rather than, than necessarily better is that that is something that is harder, I think, for somebody who's less hardcore. And somebody who's less hardcore might be the person you otherwise definitely wanted to bring out Caverna with instead of Agricola because that might be the sort of player who has more of an issue with the strictness of the feeding in Agricola. Because there are are definitely some players who just don't like the really constant punishment of, of that and how it really forces you to deal with it right away. I think the other biggest thing, and, and the, I guess the most conceptually different, not just, you know, you can make a big difference mechanically, but the most conceptually different thing in Caverna is that you can go on quests. There are spaces on the board that you can care, give your family members, which are dwarves, weapons. And then there are other spaces where they can go on quests. And what happens when they go on quests is that you get to pick different rewards off of a little chart that you have and the stronger your weapon is the better rewards are you get to pick how many rewards you get depends on the spot that you go to so you know when your guy's starting out you probably want to go to the spot that's go to the blacksmith which gives you a weapon and then go on a quest oh this is actually pretty interesting Yes, and it's also a completely different sort of path to victory that you could take because when you get your weapons way up high, you can do basically anything. You can pick up at least one of any of the resources. You can plant fields. You can mine caves. All of those you can do with the adventure. It's going to be a while until you get up to the high ones because the biggest weapon that the blacksmith can give you is an eight. And then what happens is that every time one of your dwarves goes on a quest, his weapon improves by one, like he levels up. And one of the quest rewards you can take is to make all of your dwarves who have weapons have their weapon go up by one. Now, one of the little twists with this is that 
when you are assigning your workers, you have to assign first your guys with no weapons or the worst weapons. So you can't just go, oh, my for my first action, I take my dwarf who's a 10 and I go to the quest spot. So you, you kind of have to balance that sort of thing, like how much do you expand your family? You might not want to expand your family as much. If you're going with a weapon strategy, you might just want you might just want to have the two, so you can always get your first action, send your real dwarf out to do the the good questing. I, I suspect that if you're doing something like a three-player game, often the correct strategy of do I go questing or do I go do no more normal stuff is whatever the other people aren't doing. Like if you're the guy who's got the monopoly on questing and so you just get all the questing spots, that's going to go well for you. If the other people are fighting for the questing spots and you don't care, that's probably going to go well for you as well. So it, it's a really big box. It's a it's a big game. You can play it solo like you can with Agricola. Although, I, strangely enough, even though mechanically it's not necessarily that different, like I just I cannot play Agricola solo. I I tried and it's just it's got boring. So I can't really. It, it's much easier with the app. <laughs> So that is Caverna, the cave farmers by Uwe Rosenberg, basically Agricola 2.0. If you like Agricola, you will like Caverna. They're, they're close enough that I can say that pretty confidently. Based on what other people have said, I think that probably you will like Caverna more since most people who try Caverna seem to, to like it more. Although I don't personally think it's a, a strictly superior game, but definitely something that is worth checking out if you are the sort who likes your heavy euro point fests it works out really well but for our second game i think that jay you have something that is on the complete opposite end of the heaviness spectrum from agricola and caverna no what are you talking about my star is totally a heavy euro game oh wait no i'm thinking of something anything else yeah, My Star is a card game. I don't have it with me, so I don't remember who the designer is. I'm sure it's Chris has Seiji... that. It's Seiji Kanai. It's Seiji Kanai by Love Letter. It is another one of AEG's big in Japan imports. It, it just came out in the U.S. It came out in Japan in 2010, I think. Wow. Um, it's a card game where each player is the proprietor of a geisha house and you have a hand of cards and then a lead geisha and on your turn you can either advertise which puts one of your cards down as an advertisement and increases your stats but also draws you another card or you can host a guest but you have to have each guest has a stat that you need to meet to be able to play them and you just go around turns doing one or the other until you've played out all your cards, at which point you score. Each guest is also, that you've played is also worth some number of points and has some ability when you play them. And then it's like Uno that you're trying to play your hand out, and once somebody plays their hand out, the round is done. You play it over to three rounds, and you lose points for any cards you still have left in your hand. Every time I've played it, it's been a fairly fast-paced game. Often the last two or three cards of a hand go super quick as you try to just chain them and 
leave everyone else with cards still in their hands. It isn't a heavy game. It isn't a heavy Euro game. It's a very light game, but for a light game, I, I quite enjoyed the game. I don't know about you guys. I liked it too. Yeah, I mean, it, it's totally a filler, but I think it did pretty well as a, a filler. I think one other thing that's worth mentioning is that each of the geisha has a special ability. So you basically have a player power. So there's a little bit more variability from player to player. And then you have to balance your, your cards, right? You've got some cards that are worth tons of points, but then are harder to get out. I'll just say if, if you, if you happen to play the, you know, strategy tip, the guys that are eights or nines or tens, you're not going to get them out. Just advertise with them. Uh, <laughs> and it's also, I think, good for a filler game. I know this was a, they see now I'm blanking. What what was the Seiji Kanai one that reminded me of Colossal us of Colossal Arena? Oh, uh Cheating Mages. Cheating Mages, yeah. One of the things that I thought was problematic about Cheating Mages even if it's a light game, is that you could have a runaway leader problem with that. Whereas my star definitely has the ability to play beat on the leader. Every time you play a card that discards somebody else's guest or that makes them draw a card, you can play it on the leader. Although you do have to sometimes decide between playing it on the person who maybe seems like they were leading in points coming into the round versus who's going to finish out the round this turn. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought it worked out pretty well. And the, uh, for those of us who like us, like legend of the five rings, uh, except for the geisha themselves, the artwork is reused from legend of the five rings, which I guess some people probably won't like the fact that it's reused, but mostly it means that it's gorgeous and probably lets there be much better art on a game at this low a price point than there would than there would normally be. I think at least I think the art's really good. I do too. I'm actually surprised after seeing it that we got Clan Armors instead of Clan Geisha in Ivory <laughs> Edition. So that was My Star, designed by Seiji Kanai from Alderac Entertainment Group. Next up, I'll hit another 2013 Euro, and that was that is Francis Drake. Francis Drake is designed by Peter Hawes, and it's published by Eagle Games. Francis Drake puts you as... I think you're a privateer. There you go. I think, I think you're an English privateer. Well, that would make sense. Yes, right, because it's Francis Drake, yes. So, you definitely have a boat, though. <laughs> You're on a boat. You're on but, a boat. So, so you are an English privateer, and the game is played over three rounds, and each round has two phases. I'll actually talk about the second phase first, because in the second phase, what you are going to do is take the ship and crew that you have assembled and go out into the Caribbean. And you can trade for luxury goods like sugar and tobacco. You can attack the Spanish Armada, and you can attack towns and forts that are held by the Spanish. You need cannons to take out forts or ships, and you need crew to take out towns and forts. So forts, you need both cannons and towns. You have four spot markers, so those, and they're numbered from one to four, so it's like you're in chronological order. Your ship is going to those places. So when you resolve the ship placement, it'll be, okay, my number one, then your number one, then the other guy's number one. So it can benefit you to 
be the number one because every time you hit a town or a fort or a ship, the first player who defeats it gets you get jewels or gold or silver and you get a little token and you slip it in this little treasure chest box that you have. You get bonus points every round if if you've taken different kinds of enemy targets out. So that's what you do once you have your ship. The way you assemble your ship is one of these things like, you know, like a racing game or like Takeda where you've got a number of spots and they're sequential and on your turn you can pick any spot that you want that's left between you and the the end of the track, but you can only go forward. So you have to make decisions about whether or not you jump ahead and get something good or you hang back and make more stops. Most of the spots have two or three spots, but the first one or two will be better. So the first person to go in the crew spot We'll get two crew, and then the next people will only get one each. And so that's how you go ahead and assemble your crew, and you have to figure out. I, I think that part of the game I actually liked better than what you actually ended up doing with your ships. Now, like I said, you play this over three rounds, and while I like this game, one of the things that stopped it being, I think, that stopped it being great for me is that there's no build-up in the game, or almost no build-up, right? In in most Euro games, and this is a I mean, this is a point salad game, so it's definitely a victory point salad, regardless of what the theme is. In most of these, right, there's this sense of building an engine, or there's little actions at the beginning, and then middle actions, and then you can do big awesome things, or you get bad buildings at the beginning, and then there are bigger, better buildings at the end, right? But in Francis Drake, the three rounds are almost entirely disconnected from each other. Except for the luxuries, nothing carries over from round to round. The luxuries carry over because at the end of the game, you get points for having sets or partial sets of the four different kinds of luxuries. And I think that that, that feels like it somehow detracts from the emotional satisfaction that I get from playing it. I don't does that make sense why that would might not be as you know, it doesn't give you that same yeah. emotional kick when you get to the end? Yeah, that you're you're you usually get the slow build up and the sense of accomplishment as the game progresses, you're doing bigger and better and cooler things and while it's awesome to start off like, oh, I'm already doing awesome things, then you're like, well, now I'm I'm still doing the same awesome things. I'm not better than I was earlier. Yeah, it's still good. The theme is stronger than my babbling at the beginning of the discussion. I, I think makes it sound, but so you get some theme, and then and, and Victor point is, it's a well assembled game. I think that if you like that sort of game, you will find at a minimum, satisfaction in the course of playing Francis Drake. I think it takes about a couple hours to play. How combative it is will depend on how many players there are. The minimum you can play with is three. The maximum you can play with is five, but there's no adjustment to the board. So if you go up to three, you're going to largely be able to do whatever you want. If you go up to five, there's it's really going to be cutthroat about the 
about who's winning, and then the tiebreaker for who gets to go first comes into play more. Another incentive to get all the way through the docks pretty quickly where you assemble your crew and your guns and such is that whoever gets there first gets the tiebreaker over whoever gets there after them. But that is Francis Drake by Eagle Games and designed by Peter Hawes. Next up, we have a game, I think that, Mike, that you had mentioned this as as something you were looking forward to playing, and that is the, the Core Worlds expansion. I really like Core Worlds. I feel like it's a very solid deck builder. It's interesting that it and Infinite Domain came out relatively soon within each other, relative to each other, and yet they feel basically entirely different, but they both pretty much succeed at what they're doing. As far as the expansion goes, first, of course, it adds more carbs, but the second big thing is that it adds factions. So there were already these faction symbols on the cards, on all the cards from even the base set. But they just didn't do anything. In fact, in the rulebook it said, hey, these will actually do something in the future. Guess we're in the future. Basically, any time after you have purchased the card, so you actually have to play it, but any time that you play the card, you now have tokens for your color, for whatever starting faction that you have. So there's six different guilds, and you can put your token on whatever guild is the, has the same symbol as the card you played. Those tokens on the guild, it's like it's a really big, like thick cardboard. It looks like a giant card, like the old giant magic cards or whatever. <laughs> but you just put them on there, and whenever they're on there, they're one of two things. Number one, they're victory points towards the end, and they're just literally, if I have the most of anybody on here, I get victory points equal to the number of tokens I have on here. Which is not insignificant in that game, because victory points aren't super high, and if you get a faction early and just never take advantage of its other option, it can be a significant number of uh, points. They each do something that does not cost you anything, and you're going to have to weigh, okay, well, if I'm pretty far down, you know, it's only the first and second place people on each card that get victory points. So if I am not likely to get victory points from this, you know, it's probably better if I just use its benefit. But if I'm really high up, it's, you know, so the, the different actions that you can spend them for, you can spend your tokens. One lets you get another action as long as you have an action. One reduces the cost of recruiting something. One gives you plus two, I think two grand and two air strength, or 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 yeah yeah or 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 you can use any number of these tokens, and you can use them in between. They don't take actions, etc. So they're pretty much for use. But you know, if you use them liberally, you're giving up potentially a lot of victory points to be able to do it. Hopefully, it's because you know the victory points that you will be able to get off of it are much you know it's it's a much bigger consideration. So that that's most of what it adds. It adds another faction starting deck, but really it does not go up to six players. I, I would not play this past maybe four players. It just it takes a while, especially towards the end, and it's it doesn't matter how fast a player you are. You just have to figure out, you know, okay, what can I attack? What is he going to attack? What's going to get me the most victory points? What do I think I have the most of in my deck when you get to that very last round? What am I going to be able to conquer, and what do I need to actually just buy for the guilds or whatever? So I like the expansion. I think that it adds very interesting flavor without without slowing it down too much. 
there is a very, a very big consideration what abilities you're going to use, what order you're going to use them in, how much you're going to use them. But typically you'll know. It'll typically be pretty clear, you know, okay, this victory point's not worth me not getting this three or four victory point, then, you know, a lot more energy. Yeah, it increases the possibility of someone getting analysis paralyzed because now you start adding in the different, well, if I spent this token, if I spent that token off of the guilds. I think the biggest change feel-wise of core worlds with the expansion is that uh, for better or for worse the game is a lot looser the original core worlds is very tight like when i played through that game you never quite feel like you have enough to get everything done that you want and if you it's a, a very real sense of oh, if i just had one more action or just a little bit more energy and then and it keeps it very tightly paced throughout the whole game. In Galactic Orders, the guild abilities basically just happen on top of everything else that the cards do. You're giving up victory points at the end of it, but you just have, if you want it, you can just have more energy or another action or, or, or some more attack. You know, you have to bother to take the cards that have those symbols, but, you know, that's just another part of the make sure you buy the best card. The other thing is, if I'm not wrong, didn't they change what your starting planet does? So it yeah. also has another ability that gives you a little bit more energy? And they give you another thing to actually be able to put any card under Once you've got three planets, you can put any card under it once you've uh, settled up your hand. Yeah, so you can shred out whatever the rest of the, the junk units are in your deck. Right, and, and you can now garrison anything. So you don't have to garrison the grunt or the fighter. You can garrison anything you want. So if it's a early game unit, you know, you can shove it under there. Yeah, and so that's to me, I guess it sort of reminds me it's kind of like Caverna versus Urgula. You might like that more, you might like that less. If something that you wanted out of your core world's experience was actively that very constrained, tightly paced sense, then that's gonna be a little bit of a drawback to galactic orders for you if you play core worlds and you think well i really like this game but man if i just was not so straight jacketed then you really love galactic orders two things number one you can just play without the big tablets like you can just throw in the extra cards there are probably a couple of cards you'll probably want to remove but other than that you could just play with the new cards the other thing is uh, the part that i actually did forget there's also an event deck now which is basically just mixed in with all the other cards so that when you deal out the cards for a turn, it just goes on top of the event deck and then something else gets dealt out. And then if another event happens and it goes right on top, some of them happen immediately, some of them go on top and have a lasting effect. I found that to be honestly not all that successful. I felt like it frequently had no impact. Like There were certain times where it was like, oh god, I really don't want to have to deal with this event. But then it would either get replaced by something else, or, well, yeah, that's usually what happened. I, I don't think we've ever had, like, a really bad effect that actually stuck around, because there's so many event cards. Yeah, yeah, there's so many events, only one can be in effect at a time. And if, if you think about the start of a round, you might be replacing five, eight cards, or, or whatever. So you flip up a lot of events, and some of the events have a one-shot 
when it happens effect, but a lot of them are a static effect when it comes into play. I feel like I wonder if that might have been a little better if it was designed as just a more standard here's your one event and this event is in effect for this round and then next round it will be another event. Well, I I feel like it would have been better maybe as like a side deck. So uh, that's probably I would say it's probably the least the least effective or least successful component of or aspect of the expansion. But I think the expansion like, f- was $40, and I feel like you get a lot for your money. It really does add quite a bit to Core Worlds. Yeah, I really liked the base Core Worlds. I liked playing it with Galactic Orders. Since you mentioned it, I know we can we can make the unfair comparison because these games don't have a lot in common, except that they were both space-themed deck builders that came out near each other. Uh, I liked, we, we talked about back in episode 48, which feels like forever ago, we did the original Eminent Domain versus Core Worlds. I think I might have been the only one of the three of us who came down in the, the Core Worlds camp, and having played both of them with the expansion, I am still in the Core Worlds camp. I think I'm, I might be more firmly in the Core Worlds camp now. Do you guys... You, I don't remember. I don't remember if if everybody else was eminent domain or if some people were undecided. But which camp are you guys in now? I am definitely more eminent domain now with the expansions, just because that was really what eminent domain. That expansion was really what eminent domain needed to become interesting for me, because everybody had, starting at the same standpoint, and maybe you get to this technology, maybe you don't. As eh, whatever. Not only do you start slightly different, you start you start drastic. To me, that's very very interesting. And at the same point, I also kind of appreciate how fast Eminent Domain can go versus Core Worlds. I kind of favor quicker games, and that's also why Eminent Domain is kind of crept up for me. I like both games, but if you're gonna force me to choose one, I think I'm gonna go Eminent Domain mainly just be- because Eminent Domain is everything is out you can actually plan to a limited extent what your strategy is, what you're planning to do. Whereas Core Worlds, because everything's random, you can kind of be like, I'm going to try to go for ships, or I'm going to try to go for robots, but there's just no way to really be sure you can affect a plan turn over turn. It's just, I'm going to buy whatever the best card is that's out there right now, or attack whatever the best planet I can successfully attack is this turn. It's more tactics than strategy, and I'm more interested in overall strategy than point-by-point tactics that Core Worlds has. Hmm. Not sure what I think about the two on strategy versus tactics. I do really like the different factions, the like the drastically different starting positions for Eminent Domain in the expansion. I think that's it's interesting. I think that they went a lot to making them, like you said, more drastically different than they usually were. I think a a knock on the expansion for me is that I really did not like the stuff that they did with the ships to try to make the right in the base game for some weird ordering reason they could they had three different sizes of ships and it made no difference whatsoever and it it felt like they're like well we have to do something with it now and so it ended up too fiddly. But I did really like the drastically different starting factions. I actually like the difference in the ships. I think it really adds a lot. Because you can actually now research just using ships, especially with the new technologies. 
Oh, and I think the reason that they did that was it was actually something got, they got like in excess of from another game. There was a financial reason for. I mean, there's nothing wrong with having the different ships. It was just that once they had the different kinds of ships, players were like, "Well, why are there different kinds of ships?" The ships were very high quality for basically just being tokens. No, the ships are are nice looking, but they added mechanics to suit their pieces rather than pieces to suit their mechanics. Yeah. But in addition to Eminent Domain, which we talked about before, that was Core World's Galactic Orders. It is from Stronghold Games and designed by Andrew Parks. The last game I wanted to mention today that I've played recently is uh, Tashkalar. By, is that even if that's right? Tashkalar? Ta- Tashkalar? Tashkalar? Gesundheit. Let's go with Tashkalar. And, and just to add that on top of that, it's designed by... Vlada Kvadal, whose name I'm probably also destroying. And I think it's, I think it's released by Z-Man in the, the US. This is an abstract game and there's, there's a theme on it, but it is an abstract game. You are fighting in an arena. You can play it with two players or, or four players. And your standard moves are to put tokens on the board. There is a grid board and you just put your tokens on the board. Now, what you do interesting with those tokens is that you then have a hand of cards and each card represents some character and it has a pattern on the card. When you have your tokens on the board in a particular pattern, if you can spot the pattern on your card, then you can play the card and you get two actions on your turn and that can either be playing a token or playing a card. When you play one of these cards, it'll show you where your tokens are, and then it'll show you where your legendary creature shows up, or a legendary might not be the exact right term, but you know, your your champion creature shows up. And depending on what it is, it might do something different, like the, you know, a cavalry guy might show up and then move. There's a cannon that shows up and then fires a shot. You know, like you, you choose a di- diagonal direction from where the cannon piece appears and it blows up all the pieces in that row. And in the standard mode, you earn points. There are three little goals up at the top and you get victory points for accomplishing those. And those might be controlling five of the spaces in a particular row or destroying a certain number of your opponent's spots, uh, uh, sorry, opponent's tokens in a particular round. And some of the squares on the board have green or red marks on them, and you might get points for having a certain number of those occupied or summoning two guys on red spots in the same turn, that sort of thing. It's got a catch-up mechanic where you have one begging card, inviting the gods to come down and help you in your hand. And if you are getting destroyed by a certain amount, how much it is depends on, on the card. You can get this as an extra action, so you might have one card that says, if you're down by at least four total tokens, get this effect. If you're down by at least two champion tokens, get this effect. And you can get one or both of those. And those can really swing it back and forth, but it, it serves as a helpful catch-up mechanic in, in case you get, get destroyed. Uh, like I said, the this is basically an abstract game. There's some very loose theming between what the name of the card is that you summon and what it does. Like I said, there's there's a fort where you have to have four guys in a square and the cannon takes a shot 
you can by default play it with generic decks that where both players have exactly the same deck. You can also play with faction decks where each players have a deck that plays a little bit differently. You probably want to start off with the basic one. But I enjoyed it. I liked it more than I usually like abstract games anymore. I really do like getting more theme injected into things now, and I thought Tashkalar worked out pretty well, despite the fact that it, it was pretty abstract and, and themeless. That was Tashkalar from Z-Man and Yellow, and it depends on, you know, Czech Games Edition, depends on where you are in the world, and designed by Vlada Kvadl. That is the last of our new games that we've already played for today. However, I did want to, to throw in something here at the end. If you visit strangeassembly.com, something you'll see that I every once in a while do is just sort of, I just call them now on Kickstarter, which is just, hey, here are some board games or other things that are on Kickstarter that seem interesting you might want to look at. I wanted to basically throw one of those into this. It's not on Kickstarter yet, but if you listen to our episodes, you know that we really liked Viticulture, and it was a game from last year that all all three of us thought very highly loved. So although we didn't have a an official game of the year process when we all identified that as something that we particularly liked, it's a strange assembly unofficial game of the year for 2013. Wait, wait, wait! If if we don't have a, an official process for game of the year, what is this dartboard for? <laughs> um, shush. You're not supposed to mention that on the air. Oh, my bad. But we really like Viticulture, and it's got the expansion. It's like eight expansions in one thing. And Tuscany is the set of expansions. It is going up on Kickstarter on March 12th. So hopefully it's not quite up at the point in time when you listen to this, but I guess we'll see how long it it takes me to get it out of the editing bay. It is something that I am... Very much looking forward to seeing on Kickstarter and that I'm totally planning on backing. So just sort of, you know, something I think you guys might want to check out. Yes, I'm I'm also very much looking forward to expanding Viticulture, getting some expansions in on it and seeing how those play. Yes, you get to you get to uncork the different mini expansions as you play more games. I'll probably go ahead and do another now on Kickstarter if there's other things worth wearing once that actually hits because uh, I, I am really looking forward to that. You can find that and other reviews and articles on strangeassembly.com. You can also check in with us at facebook.com slash strangeassembly or follow us on Twitter. We're at strangeassembly. You can also contact me directly at chris at strangeassembly.com. I always do like to hear from you, but until then, for Jay Earl and Mike Cook, I am Chris Stevenson, and you're listening to Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming.
do a little intermission music that Chris will have to cut in the edit because it's horrible, horrible music.